Congratulations to Will and Kate on the birth of their second child. In honor of this auspicious event, Christine and I are bringing you some famous spares through British history. Hey everybody, welcome to the special edition of Footnoting History. I'm Christine. And I'm Liz. And we're going to talk about the heir and the spare. Liz, what is the heir and the spare? Well, Christine, there's a saying that you want to have at least two children as your heir to the throne, and then you get a second bonus baby for your spare. Now, throughout British history, you had wanted them both to be male, because males were supposed to be the ones inheriting the throne. Obviously. Yes, it's only since Will and Kate's marriage, actually, that it's been changed, and girls can now also be the, the forerunner for the throne, if you will. But Christine and I, Christine, Christine texted me. I did. A few nights ago and said, we should do a podcast on special second siblings uh, in honor of the new royal baby who is a second sibling. And because British history is so full of, unfortunately... Um, not so happy news about people living to adulthood, we decided to focus on the spares. The spares who kind of came out of nowhere to make a name for themselves, if you will. It actually brought us from just second siblings to other royal siblings who ended up getting the crown or vying for it at some point. Exactly. Um, and so at first we were just going to do five, but then Christine and I each came up with three. So we said we'd stick with six, although two of mine kind of go together, as you'll find out when we get there. But it splits down three boys and three girls, because at the time of the recording, we may not have known what gender the new royal baby would be. We decided to play it safe. Yes, and the moral of the story is, pay attention to all the royal children, because you never know where they're going to end up. No, you do not, especially when you listen to our story. So Christine, would you like to kick it off? Yes, we are going to go chronologically. We're going to start off by going back to the 12th century for our first surprise heir to the crown, Matilda, Lady of the English. Now, in this time, the 12th century or the 1100s, it was not completely impossible for a woman to inherit from her father, but there was no real reason to think that Matilda would be the one to become the heiress because as King Henry I's oldest legitimate child, that didn't matter because she had a younger brother. His name was William, and because boys came first, even mm -hmm. though he was younger, he was the more important one. So Matilda was married off to the Holy Roman Emperor when she was about 11, and that was supposed to be that. Except it wasn't. In 1120, her brother William, remember the heir, he was on this ship called the White Ship that sank in the English Channel, which meant that now King Henry I was down his one legitimate male heir. All right, all hope was not lost because King Henry was a widower, so he remarried in hopes of having another son. He already had quite a few illegitimate children, but that never happened. So he thought that this might be a problem and he really wanted to have the succession all set up before he died. So he called his daughter Matilda his heir, which is shocking in itself. Mm -hmm. And to make sure that the people at his court would follow her, he had them all take oaths of allegiance. So you would think that that would be great, right? But in 1135, King Henry I died, which therefore meant Matilda was the one who should be stepping up. But Matilda's cousin Stephen, a boy, 
decided that he was going to break his vow of allegiance and take the crown for himself. Jerk. This plummeted England into a bloody civil war remembered as the Anarchy, where Matilda, who, by the way, had now been widowed and was on her second husband, Geoffrey Plantagenet, the father of her children, was struggling to get King Stephen to give the crown to her as her father had intended. Well, in 1141, Stephen was captured and imprisoned, and she had her moment in the sun, but she was never recognized as Queen Matilda. Instead, she was called the Lady of the English. Yeah, let that let that chafe for you right there. Doesn't yeah, even get ne- to be queen. No, she never got to be queen. She was a Lady of the English. So this was short-lived, and eventually Stephen would reign again after only a few months, and knocking out some of Matilda's forces in a siege by his supporters. Anyway, Matilda's oldest son, Henry, eventually picked up the cause when they realized that his mother was probably never going to get to be Queen Matilda. Eventually, he forced Stephen into negotiations for the succession. Ultimately, when they concluded, Stephen was allowed to keep the crown for as long as he lived, but instead of the crown going to his descendants, it was going to go to Henry. So Matilda's son was going to get the crown after Stephen, not Stephen's children. Now, don't think that this means that Matilda was unimportant because she never wore the crown. Not only was she the first Norman woman to technically inherit and fight for her right to the English throne, but it was her blood, not Stephen's, that prevailed. The intended line of succession from Henry I was reinstated by her son, who became Henry II, and then his children, Richard and John, and after that, John's son, and so on and so forth, forming the lengthy Plantagenet dynasty. So Stephen was basically a blip. That's right. Stephen's the blip, not Tildy. Right, but Tilda became the heiress, and she wasn't supposed to. Okay, so that's our first. So Christine brought us to kind of the high Middle Ages, and I'm going to bring you to the to the later. This is where we get, and we're going to go into, is it the Renaissance? Is it the early modern? We're actually not going to have that debate today. But I'm going to bring you to the, uh, the 15th and 16th centuries for my three. First, I'm going to admit it's a little bit of a stretch, but I just really enjoy it. I'm going to take who I call, I like to call him Richard IV. So Richard IV, as I call him, is actually more famous for what someone under his name did than anything he actually did. Confused? Good, because so was everyone else. All right, now bear with me because there are about 50 Richards and 30 Edwards in all of my stories. In the mid-15th century, a man named Richard of York had 13 children, seven of whom lived to somewhat adulthood, and two of whom are rather relevant to this story— Edward, and another Richard. Uh, I'm going to be up front, so as I said, there are lots of Richards in the story, and for the sake of convenience, we'll have Richard the Dad, who was the first Richard I mentioned, Richard the Son, who's the second Richard I mentioned, and Richard the Nephew, who's going to crop up later and also be Richard the Fourth. I like all of them. I know. Henry the Sixth became king as an infant, and as was the custom, someone else was chosen to rule in his stead, you might say, during his minority, i.e. his childhood. That person was Richard the Dad, and as Lord Protector, Richard the Dad got a taste for power, and unsurprisingly, he rather liked it. Richard the Dad decided that he should be king, and thus began the Wars of the Roses. Ultimately, Richard the Dad never realized this dream, but two of his sons did. Edward became Edward IV, and Richard the Son became Richard III. Now, anyone paying attention to news knows that Richard III's body was found under a car park in Leicester in 2012. But there's obviously more to that story than that. After Edward IV passed away at a young age, he had left six children, 
including two sons who are, for the sake of this podcast and for the sake of the succession, the heir and the spayer, since, as Christine so wonderfully explained, males inherited first. Edward's son, Edward, yes, really, they love these names, Edward IV's son, Edward, was set to become the next king with his uncle, Richard, so Richard the son, as his lord protector. Except events went pear-shaped, and as sure as Bob's your uncle, Richard the son ended up ascending the throne and becoming Richard III. So what of Edward IV's sons? Okay, without getting into a debate, because seriously, if you're in any sort of historical or medieval or British history group, you know that there are debates. We're just going to say that Edward and his younger brother, another Richard, Richard the Nephew, were locked in the tower during Richard III's reign and were near seen again after the summer of 1483. And nobody knows who locked them there or what happened. And that's why we're not getting into the bait, because at this point, then you, it goes, it'll go, you want to talk so, pear-shaped, it's going to go pear-shaped. All right, so they're never seen again, or were they? That's dun, where dun, I just, right, this is where I decided I'm going to, I'm going to run with this. This is going to be my spare. I'm running with it. That's where the second sibling theme comes into play here. You see, the mysterious disappearance of the boys led to the appearance of pretenders to the throne. And the most successful pretender, named Perkin Warbeck, which is like the most awesome name ever, declared himself to be Richard the Nephew, i.e. Richard IV. And Henry VII, who had taken over, if you like, after Richard III lost his crown and some other things, had to fight an actual battle to keep his throne. That's right, a pretender to the throne... Yes. What's a pretender? What's a pretender? A pretender is someone who pretends to be someone else, but in this case, we're talking someone who says they're the actual heir to the throne. Just for the people who haven't heard our earlier episodes. <laughs> for people who don't sit around and discuss pretenders to the throne, are they listening to us? Hello, people. <laughs> Hello. It's nice to have you aboard. So there, if you're going to be a pretender to the throne, picking the younger sibling, the spare, if you will, to masquerade as, can actually be quite successful to a point... If you'd like to know my thoughts on Pretenders to the Throne, because of course you do, um, who took advantage of the disappearance of the Little Princess, you can actually listen to the first podcast I ever recorded, which is on that topic. And if you want to find out what might have happened to Richard IV in an alternate universe, I suggest you start watching some Blackadder. Okay, Perkin Warbeck and his battle against Henry VII actually sags us very nicely into our next set of surprise inheritors to the throne, and it's a father-daughter duo. Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. Tudor time. Full disclosure, Christine and I love monarchy. We do. We do. We don't love the Tudors. Also true. Sometimes, for the sake of history, you must even discuss that which you like to pretend never existed. So here goes. Tudor history. Hmm. I took these upon myself. I actually did come up with them, but then I did not force Christine to talk about them because, dude. It <laughs> because I'm a me. more ardent Yorkist than you are even, possibly. This is true. I and can't also, even discuss the tutors. I feel like I would have been a really bad friend if I was like, I totally came up with the tutors and now it's your turn to talk about them. Okay. <laughs> Arguably, Henry VIII is actually one of the most important kings in English history, and I can't believe I just said that. He broke with Rome and, most famously, had a lot of wives. Henry, though, he was not meant to be king. Henry was the second son of Henry VII. In fact, it was Henry's older brother, Arthur, yes, named for the legendary king of the Britons, who was supposed to ascend the throne. Arthur, however, died in 1502 at age 15 and left behind 10-year-old Henry, who suddenly became not the spare, but the heir. Henry went on to have a confusing marriage. Were they married? Were they not? 
And even intimate knowledge of Catholic doctrine can't say for sure since no one knows how intimate Henry's wife Catherine and his brother Arthur were during their marriage. Yes, Henry married his deceased older brother's wife. How Levitical of him. As you do. Well, yes, if you listen to the book of Leviticus, which Henry said for a while he was, and then he said he wasn't. Let's all pause a moment and consider what it would have been like if Arthur hadn't died. Oh, oh that's a point that they make in Wolf Hall. Is it really? Oh, About if you've Leviticus, seen Wolf Hall. Yes. Well, that was, that was, Henry had said it was, I can get into the doctrine if you guys want. I'm not going to here, but if you want on the Facebook page, the Twitter, or the blog, I'll talk doctrine. Let's all pause a moment and consider what it would have been like if Arthur hadn't died. Would England still be nominally Roman Catholic? What words would we sing to the delightful tune of I'm Henry VIII I am? All good questions, some better than others. But, as I said, Henry had many wives, but what he didn't have were many children, legitimate or otherwise. In fact, Henry left behind only three legitimate children as his potential heirs. Edward, yeah, another Edward. Mary, and Elizabeth. Now, heretofore, I've chosen my picks based more on the idea of the spare than being the literal second sibling. Richard the nephew was the younger brother of Edward V, but he wasn't the second child, he was the sixth. Henry VIII was the second son, but the third child. Elizabeth, though. Elizabeth was the second child, and her whole period as the heir was supposed to be ended with her mother's death. But as Desmond on Lost likes to say, the universe has a way of course correcting. Pretend I said that with a really cool Scottish accent. I appreciate that two of our people so far have course corrected, right? Matilda course corrected with Henry II, and now we're course correcting again. Okay, Henry thought that his son Edward, by his third wife, was his heir. And he was for a bit. Remember, he's the son. It did take until a third wife to get a male legitimate heir. Um, But Edward died at age 15, like Henry's brother Arthur. And that left behind Henry VIII's oldest daughter, Mary. From his first, is it a marriage we don't know, to Catherine of Aragon. But again, we don't know, so she inherited the throne after the whole hijinks with Jane, King Queen Jane. Um, really good movie with Helena Bonham Carter and Carrie Elwes, if you'd like to see it. But anyway, so Mary ascends the throne, but she only reigns for five years before she too dies without issue. And that left Elizabeth, curly, red-haired daughter of a witch with six fingers on one hand Elizabeth, to ascend the throne. And once there, she was there. She did not give it back. No, Elizabeth reigned for 44 years. She ruled England through the Spanish Armada and Shakespeare. Jesuits tried to assassinate her. Men tried to marry her. And she just kept right on trucking. If you're going to be a surprise heir, be like Elizabeth. Own it. Except for in one way. You might not want to be like Elizabeth in the fact that she also left behind. No No issue. Seriously, people. If you want to give anything to Stephen, no, not to Stephen, I'm sorry, to Matilda's father, he wanted to set up the secession. Good for him. Right? Just focus Seriously. on that. Henry VIII wanted to set up the secession. That didn't go too well for Elizabeth. No. But once Elizabeth died in 1603. Yes. And once that happened, the mm-hmm. crown had to pass to their Scottish monarch relatives. Yes, who James. Who started a totally different dynasty. We're going to call them the Stuarts. Yes, we did. They ruled from 1603 to the death of Queen Anne in 1714, minus a small period of civil war and no monarchy yet. Well, yes. So we're going to skip that, and we're going to go right to the end of the Stuarts. And we're going to go to the last Stuart monarch, which will be our surprise monarch number five, 
Queen Anne. So we're going to another girl from Elizabeth to Queen Anne. Anne was born in 1665 and she was definitely not going to be the heir when that happened. She wasn't even the sister of the heir. She was the second daughter of the king's brother. So things changed pretty quickly for Anne, actually. Mm-hmm. And in the 1680s, King Charles II, her uncle, died. And the crown passed to his brother, who was Anne's father, and became King James II. Then, James II, he wasn't too popular. So he got removed from power by what is known as the Glorious Revolution, which placed his daughter, because remember, we've set the precedent of women ruling with Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. Exactly. So, Glorious Revolution removes James II and places his daughter, who is Anne's older sister, Mary, on the throne. She becomes Mary II, and she co-rules with her husband, William of Orange, who is That's known right, as... That's right, because we like co-rulers now. After the whole Elizabeth fiasco, we want issue, man. Exactly. So now we have Mary II and William III ruling together. They are the people who gave their name to William & Mary College, if you happen to be from Virginia. Mm. Suddenly, it's almost 1690. Anne is still under the age of 30, and she's the next in line to the crown if William & Mary don't have children. That's a big step to go from second daughter of the king's brother to possible heir to the crown in a span Mm -hmm. of, you know, 10 years' time. Yes. So, as you can guess what might have happened... William and Mary did not, in fact, have heirs of their body. To make matters worse, Mary II doesn't even live very long as queen. She passed away from smallpox in 1694, leaving William to rule alone without an heir. Now, interesting point. I read that it was decided that Anne and Anne's children would have the throne before any children William had with a second wife or third wife or however many wives he could have had after Mary. But that didn't make any difference because William died in 1702 with no more children. So guess what? Our once king's brother's second daughter was now Queen Anne. Sounds like the Smothers Brothers. The Smothers Brothers, other's brother's mother. Yes. That's exactly what it is. And Queen Anne ruled for 12 years and she was the last Stuart monarch because she too did not have children who lived to adulthood. But politically, and is very important to anybody who followed the recent movement for Scottish independence, because it was during her reign that the Act of Union officially joined Scotland and England into the, quote, United Kingdom of Great Britain. It merged their legislatures into one parliament, and it said that the English St. George's flag and the Scottish St. Andrew's flag would be combined. So the Scottish people who were trying to get independence can thank... Queen Anne for the creation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain in the early 1700s. As I mentioned, she and her husband, Prince George of Denmark, did not see any of their children live to adulthood. So when it became clear that Anne would die without her own child, she arranged to have her cousins, the Hanovers, take the crown. Anne passed away in 1714 at the still young age of 49, and the crown of Great Britain went to Hanover King George I. All right, I wish so. King George felt like my big toe. That's from 1776. Anyway, sorry. No, that's okay, because you know why? We started with George the First. You mm-hmm. just made a joke about, I believe, George the Third, because you're talking about 1776. And we're going to skip ahead again from the 18th century to the 20th century and talk about our last selection, King George the Sixth. 
But, you know, let's just say something that the Hanovers were not without their own problems of passing to spares. No. Because when, yeah, when George IV died, the crown went to his brother. Mm-hmm. And then more famously, when William IV died, he didn't have a child to pass it to. So Queen Victoria, his niece, became the queen. Exactly. The Hanovers were not a steady succession from George I all the way down to George VI in the 20th century. But we're skipping from 1714 to 1936. I like to call it the year of three kings because early in 1936, King George V, who ruled through the First World War, passed away and in a rare moment of typically desired fashion, passed the crown to his oldest son, King Edward VIII. Movies like The King's Speech, Wallace and Edward, and W.E. have all thrust what happened into the international spotlight because, you know, let's just face it, it's a really juicy story and it Mm -hmm. lends itself well to dramatization. It really does. Edward, who had been in love with an American woman named Wallace Simpson for several years, was determined to become her third husband. The twice-divorced Wallace Simpson was never going to be welcomed as a queen consort. So, in December of, yes, still 1936, Edward VIII abdicated, passing the crown to his brother, our spare number six, King George VI. George did suffer from the speech impediment portrayed in the King's speech, and he did perpetually struggle to overcome it. But just because he wasn't born heir and wasn't eloquent didn't mean that he neglected to take his surprise job seriously. Among his several visits to other countries, in 1939, he became the first British monarch to visit the United States. During World War II, he endeared himself to many by regularly visiting some of the most heavily bombed areas of his country, including at one point having tea with workers while air raid sirens were going on around him. George's ascension is significant not just because he was a royal spare, but also because when he became king, his daughter suddenly came into the direct line of succession. She would have, right, because she would have been the king's niece, and then she Mm -hmm. went to being the king's daughter. That's right. But he only had two daughters. That's right. Mm -hmm. So she grew up to be Queen Elizabeth II, who is still reigning today. And she's currently poised to unseat her ancestor, the other royal spare, Queen Victoria, as Britain's longest reigning ruler this fall. And of course... George VI, we know, has not been forgotten by the royal family since his great-great-grandson and big brother of the currently born royal baby that we're celebrating today is Prince George. Exactly. All right. Well, Christine and I hope that you've enjoyed this uh, dipping of our toes into famous spares in British history through the British royal line. We know we enjoyed researching it and writing it up for you. The monarchy is one of our favorite topics, and it's so easy to just assume that for long stretches of time, things just passed on easily. But we've just discovered that starting in the 1100s, that was not the case. I mean, it's even before that, that it's not the case. But hey, we picked out six good people, I think. So remember to tell all your friends about Matilda, Richard IV, as I like to call him, Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, Anne, and George VI. And again, congratulations, Will and Kate, on the new baby. Yes, congratulations. And congratulations, Prince George, on becoming a big brother. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. 
Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week! <laughs>